Hello again, fight fans, and welcome to episode number 114 of The Neutral Corner. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Quick reminders, still no video with TNC. For those of you who didn't get the message last week, uh, I'm actually putting my home on the market right now, so I had to strike down the studio, the green screen setup, and all that. It's going to be like that for a little while, guys, so just bear with us. As you've seen, if, if you follow the channel, We've continued to post other videos, ringside recaps, rant videos, stuff like that. So that will continue, but TNC will have no picture for a while as we're in between homes. Also, quick housekeeping note, please go to the Apple Podcast, find The Neutral Corner, find Montero Unboxing, subscribe, leave us a rating, leave us a review. I know because I can see the numbers, thousands of you are listening, only 30 of you have left a review. So get to it, damn it. All right, news and notes. So I did a Twitter poll Saturday morning. This was after Scott Quigg had came in almost three pounds overweight for his fight with Oscar Valdez. Three pounds almost over the featherweight limit for their featherweight title fight. And on the, on the uh, poll, I asked, if you were Oscar Valdez, would you go through with the fight tonight? 41% of you said absolutely not. 59% of you said sure for the right amount of money. Now, of course, we all knew that this fight was gonna go forward. Uh, Valdez, despite you know some of the uh, warnings from his team and some recent examples where this type of scenario did not play out well for the smaller fighter. He went through with the fight and it ended up being a really, really great fight that I'll talk about later in this episode. But 350 of you voted and I'm not surprised that it was almost split down the middle whether you'd go forward with the fight or not. That is a scenario that we see more and more in the sport and uh, I think that more needs to be done to handle those situations. The, the, the athletic commissions, the sanctioning organizations need to find a way to have some sort of uniform protocol with how we handle those situations. Okay, let's move on to some fights that are being rumored. Manny Pacquiao versus Lucas Matisse in Malaysia. Now, Bob Arum, he says that this fight is not happening, that if he has it his way, Jose Ramirez should get the fight if he beats Amir Imam this Saturday in New York. So look, there's constant drama with Manny Pacquiao. Every year, he's, there's rumors he's gonna be fighting in one of the Middle Eastern countries and some oil shake is putting up millions of dollars. That never falls through, it always falls through, never works out. There's always this opponent, that opponent, it doesn't work out. So look, with all the Manny Pacquiao stuff, I, I, I'm just over the drama. He should have retired years ago. He's been phoning it in since about 2011, 2012 anyway. And I'll believe it when I see it. If a fight with Lucas Matisse gets made, I don't know, I don't care what country, I'd be interested in that fight at this stage. I actually think they'd be an entertaining scrap, but I'll believe it when I see it. Jorge Linares versus Vasily Lomachenko. This fight was dead in the water. Now it's being talked about again. A real possibility for May 12th. Again, I'll believe it when I see it. I really, really like that matchup. I think it'd be great. Either way, Lomachenko is going to fight on May 12th. It's either going to be against Jorge Linares or Ray Beltran, so we'll have to see. The one fight that is signed, sealed, and delivered, Jarrett Hurd versus Arizlandi Lara. We didn't know where this fight was going to go. There was rumors it might come to StubHub. I wish it would have, but ultimately it's going to Las Vegas. And of course, this will be on Showtime. And now the Adrian Broner-Jesse Vargas fight will be the co-feature. I really, really like that card. That's this nice, solid little doubleheader. And I like the fight between Jared Hurd and Arizlandi Lara. Finally, we're going to get some unification at junior middleweight. That's going to be a fun one. Okay, now I wanted to really delve into something here in some detail because you didn't get enough of it last week. I want to talk or address these so-called double standards people are accusing me of having with these different drug testing situations as it relates to guys like Alexander Povetkin, Floyd Mayweather, Lucas Brown, and of course the latest and greatest, Saul Canelo Alvarez, right? So there's a bunch of stuff, um, in, you know, look, I, I've been called a shill for Golden Boy and for Canelo and all this stuff over the last week or so, and I could have used better words. I, I listened back to the uh, episode number 113 of the Neutral Corner. I could have used some better verbiage, but overall, I, I think what I was saying was pretty moderate and e pretty easy to understand for someone who um, isn't biased one way or the other. But I got accused of being all kinds of different things. And I got reamed on Twitter, on YouTube. 
And I can deal with that stuff. I get it all the time anyway. It's fine. But I just find it hilarious that suddenly I'm Canelo Alvarez, his biggest defender, and I'm such a Golden Boy promotion shill, even though I was reaming these guys last year when they were gouging fans to make a fight with Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., which is essentially just a commercial for his fight with Golovkin, which they also gouged fighters at there. Not to mention, I let Bob Bennett and the Nevada State Athletic Commission have it in a post-fight press conference. That, those videos and those sound bites and everything went viral. What you guys didn't see is I also reamed Eric Gomez in Oscar De La Hoya. Because ultimately, this was their promotion. And Adelaide Bird's terrible scorecard, that falls under them and their responsibility partially. And I even brought it up with Tom Lawford because him and his side bear a small portion of responsibility as well. Suddenly, I'm the biggest shill for these people, right? I love how that works. So I'm seeing a lot of things on Twitter, a lot of things on YouTube, trying to compare this Canelo Alvarez testing situation to recent cases of clenbuterol positive tests. And I see a lot of memes. One particular meme I've seen that's been floating around, and I don't know who created it, it doesn't really matter, but shows the level, the picograms, of clenbuterol that came up in the positive test for Canelo versus other athletes in recent, in recent years, going back to like 2010, who were suspended or treated uh, more harshly. What those memes don't do is provide the additional information, the totality of the information, the nuance that makes every single one of those cases different. It's just a quick little carefully selected data point to make things look a certain way. One of the names on that list was Alberto Contador, who is a cyclist out of Spain, I believe, who tested positive, I believe, back in 2010 with 40 picograms or 0.004 nanograms of clenbuterol in his system. And of course, Canelo Alvarez, now the figure everyone's going around showing is he tested positive for 600 and then 800 picograms or 0.06 or 0.08 nanograms of clenbuterol in his system on two tests, February 17th, February 20th. And this Contador guy, he got suspended. But there's a lot more to that case with Alberto Contador. So I'll just give a couple... Look, before I get into some of the details... If you just give a carefully selected data point and you ignore the rest of the data and the rest of the story and, provide, and fail to provide that information, if you take that into a court of law as a case, the judge would throw it out. If you took that into a science lab to try to prove a hypothesis, the scientists would laugh you out of the lab. That's not how it works. As I try to explain to you guys, these situations are very complex and there's a lot of Nuance, there's that word again. So anyway, clenbuterol, for starters, as I told all of you, is banned from use with livestock in the European Union. Banned in the United States of America. So when Contador tested positive for 40 picograms in 2010 and blamed it on contaminated meat, that excuse didn't necessarily hold up in the EU where clenbuterol is banned. It is not used with lamb, swine, poultry, beef, not used there. It's illegal. Also, Contador had been suspected and his team related to performance-enhancing drugs going back to 2006. His manager at one point was under suspicion, his team. So there was a lot of uh, red flags there. On top of that, clenbuterol had came up in one test out of over 80,000 doping tests performed from 2008 to 2009 in the EU. Let me repeat that. 2008 to 2009, over 80,000 doping tests were performed of athletes, various sports, various uh, regions, countries in the EU. Over 80,000. One positive case of clenbuterol came up. And Contador popped, as I said again, in 2010. Further, out of 19,431 animal tests in Spain over the same period, there were none, as in zero, as in absolutely freaking none, no samples that came back positive for clenbuterol. 
19,431 animal tests in Spain over the same time. Zero came back positive for clenbuterol. So there is absolutely no excuse for the contaminated meat thing related to Alberto Contador. Contador's urine sample taken during the day prior to, his, to, the, to the day his clenbuterol positive sample came back was reported to contain plastic residue indicating possible blood doping as these materials are introduced to the bloodstream from blood bags used in blood doping. Now I could go on and on and on with this Alberto Contador case, but as you can see, there's a lot of nuance there. There's a lot, there's what I call a chain of events, a sequence of events, a chain that we can link together that points a lot of suspicion at this man. And the suspension was justified. I'm just giving you a piece of the information. I will provide a link in a pinned comment on this video. I will provide several links this week because I'm getting sick of this bullshit from wackos wanting to throw all kinds of shade at me as if I got some kind of agenda here with what I'm doing on this channel. My agenda is the anti-agenda. So let's get back to Canelo Alvarez. Let's talk about what we do know. First of all, I think it's pretty obvious that Canelo is the number one figure in the sport. I know Anthony Joshua is a big deal in the UK, but the guy who brings in the most money internationally is Saul Canelo Alvarez, and he's the big player now in Las Vegas now that Floyd Mayweather's done. So he absolutely gets special treatment from the WBC, WBA, and the Nevada State Athletic Commission. No shit. We've known this. This isn't news. So for people to be shocked that Mauricio Suleiman in a recent statement said, I give the benefit of the doubt to Canelo. He has our absolute vote of confidence. And they're siding with him in this whole drug testing thing and believing the tainted meat excuse without any investigation even, before an investigation's even performed. Why are you guys surprised? Now I'm not saying that this is right, that it's that it's the way things should be, I'm telling you that it's the way it is. And it's not just in boxing, it's not just in sports, it's in life. Look at LeBron James in the NBA. Dude catches the ball, carries it on every single play, double dribbles constantly, takes 800 steps on his way to the basket before he dunks. Never called for a travel, a carry, double dribble, nothing, never. You breathe on LeBron, it's a foul. LeBron could punch another dude in the balls who's the 6th, 7th, 8th man off the bench. It might get called. Maybe. I saw a clip of LeBron James recently putting his hands on a ref and pushing a ref in a recent game. There was no suspension. Not even a tech. He wasn't thrown out. Yeah, you think LeBron James gets special treatment? I don't know how you guys watch the NBA if you're over 25. The NBA is for teenagers. It's for kids. Because any grown-ass adult watching that, you think boxing has double standards and special treatment for its stars. Watch one NBA game. That entire league's compromised. Every single game just shows you special treatment and double standards just by the way it's refed, by the way it's officiated. I don't know how a grown-ass man watches that league anymore. But back to boxing. I don't blame any of you for being suspicious of Canelo Alvarez. I'll tell you this much. I saw him a couple weeks ago here at the press conference for the Golovkin rematch. His head sure looked bigger. Now, I don't know if it's that big Irish hair because he has that big, puffy Irish quaff on his head of red hair and he had a big red beard on his face. Maybe that made his head look bigger. Maybe there were shoulder pads in his suit jacket. But to me, he looked visibly bigger. And I know, that is a red flag. It's suspicion. But suspicion does not equal guilt. And for those of you who are making, and I've seen people tweet this. I've seen some of you weirdos tweet stuff. He's cheating because of the judges in Las Vegas. He's cheating because he's a steroid user. Oh, do you know that for sure? And what do the Las Vegas judges have to do with him? He didn't crawl up in Adelaide's bird to make her give that terrible scorecard. I'm not defending Canelo Alvarez here, guys. I'm just stating the reality of the situation, okay? But I don't blame you for being... Suspicious. But here's what we do know. For the first fight, both him and Golovkin volunteered for VADA testing. 
All tests came back negative, including the night of the fight. And I know this because I was sitting there talking to the VADA people there at the event at T-Mobile. They were going to test both of them that day. They both had urine and blood tests multiple times. But that fight was September 16th, 2017. We don't know what the hell Canelo, or Golovkin for that matter, have been up to since September 17th, 2017, up until February of this year. About five months. That could have been doing any damn thing. What we do know about Canelo is that he tested positive February 17th and 20th, as I mentioned before. And those were the first two tests done by VADA in the camp for this rematch. Subsequently, there were two more tests taken in March that came back negative. So he had trace elements of clenbuterol at the start of camp. That's what we know. Now, it's one of two scenarios that took place between September 17th and mid-February. Two things, one of two things. Either he was doping during that five months. Maybe it was a mixed cocktail. Maybe he was doing several different things, not just clenbuterol. He was using a bunch of stuff. Who knows, right? And maybe under this scenario, they have been doing this for years. And the normal cycle down process that they did, the half-lifing and all that, didn't quite work the same way this time. Because as athletes get older, as their body grows, change, uh, the cycling process can alter and change with it, right? Your metabolism changes. Uh, you might have uh, harder fat deposits in your body. The cells, okay? So things break down a little slower. So maybe they just miscalculated something and those traces of clenbuterol were in a system to start camp. That's one possible scenario. It's entirely possible. We can't prove it or disprove it. What's also possible is that the week before the fight, him and his homies said, man, we got to go back to camp, y'all. This is going to be tough. This next eight, nine, ten weeks, it's going to be brutal. Let's go out and get some beers. Let's go hit the strip club. Let's, let's hit the casino. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, they were hungry, and they went to a taco truck, and they got some food. And that meat was contaminated, as up to 30% of the meat in Mexico is. And a lot of you are talking about, well, red meat. Canelo says he doesn't eat red meat in training camp. Well, guess what? They don't just put... They don't just use clenbuterol for cattle in Mexico. As I mentioned before, it's used in different types of li uh, livestock. So you don't necessarily have to eat red meat to get clenbuterol contamination. So that's another possible scenario. Can't prove it. Can't disprove it. That's all I ever said, guys. This is a living, breathing situation. We don't know how it's going to play out. Right now, we don't have a sequence of events. We have those two tests, but that's it. We don't have a chain link of events that goes back years, months. Even months would be something at this point, but we don't even have that. We have two tests three days apart, which if you ate something that week, eh, it makes sense. It could happen. Especially if you went out and bought a bunch of meat and you're eating from that meat for a week or so. But what happens if Canelo misses weight May 4th? What happens if he drops or even stops Golovkin May 5th? There's some suspicion. If he was using clenbuterol, which helps you cut weight, and then he stops using it, and he doesn't make weight, boy, that starts to look a lot like the Lewis Neri situation, right? In other situations we've seen. There's a chain of events that span months. If he drops or hurts or even stops Golovkin, a guy who's never so much as been buzzed in a fight, that looks suspicious because he couldn't do that in the first fight and he landed some hellacious counterpunches. And then, of course, what happens if he tests positive again? I don't predict this will happen, but if he does, well, guess what? He should be suspended indefinitely and the fight should be immediately canceled. Even though it's in Vegas and people have already put up millions of dollars, these Vegas fights, the money is propped up in the beginning. It's way harder to cancel them. But if he tests positive again during this camp, he should be suspended indefinitely for a period of no less than two years, and the fight should be canceled. That's it, pending an investigation. All this, of course, could be solved if you would take a hair sample test. And a lot of you have talked about this. And I know this is Victor Conti's baby, the hair sample test. Here's the thing about that. There's no precedent for it. Right now, WADA has no protocol or science behind it. They have no process for it. So the testing agencies, they're not going to do it. 
because they don't want to be wrapped up in any possible litigation. All these cases have tons of litigation, right? You can really get yourself in trouble if you don't have all your ducks in a row. So until WADA sets up the science behind it and the protocol, the process, you're not going to see VADA, USADA, UCAD, and other agencies do the hair sample test. So it's got to come from Bob Bennett and the Nevada Athletic Commission. They have to demand it as part of their investigation. And believe you me, come May 5th at the post-fight press conference, I will raise these questions to Bob Bennett. You guys saw what I did for the first fight. You'll see me do it again for this fight. And I will also press questions to Canelo Alvarez and his team about their willingness to take random 365-day-a-year drug testing like Nonito Donaire and Edwin Rodriguez because that would help alleviate a lot of fan suspicion. I will bring these questions up, guys. Until then, what more can we do other than gather information and report accordingly? Per WADA, any positive result of clenbuterol in a drug test is a violation. Therefore, in my opinion, it's, you know, it's not even really opinions, it's, it should be a fact, there should be a definitive action by the Nevada Athletic Commission. They have to do something. Now, maybe they won't do it until after the fight, but they have to take some sort of action here because this positive test, it is a violation per WADA. Here's the thing, though. WADA, on their same, the same uh, release where they talked about clenbuterol and meat poisoning and any positive test is a violation, in that same release, they say every positive test result will be handled on a case-by-case -case basis due to the gray area in unknown science wrapped around meat contamination as it relates to clenbuterol. So even WADA is unclear about how to proceed with this. That's why I'm not leaving it up to the testing agencies to do something. It is up to the Association of Boxing Commissions and really up to the Nevada State Athletic Commission because they're the most powerful commission in the world to take action here, not to sit around and wait for WADA. Now, there's also the issue of stacking with Canelo's gloves. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's essentially putting a layer of gauze, then tape over the knuckles and repeating this process. So it kind of packs almost like a cast over your knuckles. And through a fight, as your hands get wet and sweat, it further compacts the gauze and the tape together. And it makes it a hard cast. Now, I will post a link to the Nevada State Athletic Commission's ruling on stacking. I'll post it in that comment section. They're kind of unclear, but they say that per their bylaws, stacking is allowed. However, if you talk to Ronnie Shields, the trainer of Irislandi Lara, he said that when they fought Canelo in Las Vegas, they tried to wrap their hands that way, and the commission officials would not let them do it. Yet they let Canelo do it. So, yeah, more gray area here, more inconsistency from Nevada, more special treatment to a star fighter. And by the way, I was ringside for Lara Canelo, and I can attest to what Ronnie Shields said. I covered that fight. So that's everything we know about Canelo right now. But I can't say definitively that he did something purposely wrong. I can't say definitively that he did something on accident. All I can do is present the information, and once we have a series of events linked together that we can really start to look at things, and then we can start to maybe assume or, or decipher and figure out what's going on. But right now, guys, there's simply not enough. For those of you saying that Canelo's a cheat, you could say, I believe he's a cheat, I think he's a cheat, but you can't just definitively say he's a cheater. And I even saw somebody tweet today, he's a cheater because of the Vegas judges. That's about the stupidest thing I've ever seen. That's a pretty elementary argument. Now, I want to talk about Alexander Povetkin for the five billionth time because it's my favorite subject. You guys keep talking about this shit. And unfortunately, there are a few channels out there that are just wacko and, again, carefully select which data points, which disclosures, which rulings they want to talk about. They'll talk about paragraph 10 of a 14-paragraph page of a ruling, of a document. And they'll use that as their evidence, quote-unquote, that Povetkin was clean and never failed a test. I'm doing air quotes as I say all this shit. Let's start with the first test, or the first uh, prohibited substance he tested for, and that was meldonium. 
I've also heard it pronounced meldonium. <laughs> I've heard it pronounced a bunch of different ways. I say meldonium. April 27, 2016, just before his fight with Deontay Wilder that was scheduled for that May, he tests positive for trace elements of meldonium. It had been on the WADA watch list in 2015, and in September of 2015, WADA announced that they would add it to their prohibited list on January 1st, 2016. Now, Povetkin's team said that they stopped taking it at the end of 2015 and that it just must have just stayed in their system for about four months and it just hadn't phased all the way out. Now, from January, really through the first quarter of 2016, there were over 170 positive tests for meldonium. 27 were Russians. This is a drug that a lot of Russian athletes used for years. Grindex, that's the company, G-R-I-N-D-E-K-S, it's a company in Latvia that produces meldonium, says that meldonium can take several months to leave an athlete's body if somebody's been taking it for a sustained period of years. WADA, in a subsequent ruling that didn't come until June of 2016, well after Povetkin tested positive, in that ruling said that there is currently a lack of scientific information on excretion times. Right, So the contaminated meat excuse you get with clenbuterol, which you started getting with these guys who were testing positive for meldonium, was this excretion time excuse. Where, hey, it takes a few months. And for some guys like Povetkin, a few months became eh, four months. Okay. WADA released a ruling basically because of this gray area saying that if you tested within a certain time frame and, and if it was under a certain threshold of this substance that was in your body, we're going to grant you an exemption. You're, you're good. Here's the thing, though. In that same ruling, the same ruling that these wackos keep pointing to that said exonerated Povetkin and proved he was clean, in that same damn ruling, it said any positive test is a violation, meaning... Anything more than zero. So meldonium was in Povetkin's system. It was a positive test. That's a violation. But under this ruling, and remember, this is in April. Now, when the ruling WADA puts out and releases uh, the, the, everything on their, on their page in June, there's a gray area because of the excretion times. The science isn't completely yet known. And there's a lot of debate in the scientific community if this drug should even be on the prohibited list to begin with. So, we're going to grant you an exemption. In this time frame and under this amount of nanograms of the substance, you get an exemption right now. And Povetkin fell into that. Here's what these channels aren't telling you. Povetkin tested negative in three tests, April 7th, 8th, and 11th. Then popped negative, or I'm sorry, positive, on April 27th. That right there, guys, is enough to suspend somebody. Now, I know some of, the, some of the wackos are cringing right now, but the truth of the matter is, combined with everything that was going on at that time in, with the Russian doping scandal, and maybe there was a little bit of guilt of association there, sure, but three negative tests a month before the fight, and then a week or so before the fight, a positive test. That looks highly suspicious. That is enough to cancel a fight that a sanctioning body was going to sanction for their title. That's enough. Now, I mentioned the Russian doping scandal. 41 Olympic medals won by Russian athletes, mostly in the 20, 2008 and 2012 games, were stripped as a result of the scandal. One Russian boxer... One had, had a medal in the 2016 games. He was stripped. From 2011 to 2015, over 1,000 Russian competitors were involved in this state-sponsored doping scandal. I will post a link to this so you guys can read up on it, okay? Every year, WADA publishes a summary of all the anti-doping rule violations they had that year. From 2013 to 2015, there were over 5,500 anti-doping rule violations. Russian athletes constituted 10% of them. Number one in the world, more than any other country. So with all that going on, 
plus negative, 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 boom, positive. That sequence of events, that timeline didn't look good. Further, at the time Povetkin lost to Vladimir Klitschko in 2013, his KO percentage was 63%. 63% after the Vlad fight. He, that's his only loss as a pro, and there's no shame losing to Vladimir Klitschko. He's an all-time great. But 63% knockout percentage. Then he comes back in 2014 with a newly defined body. And from 2014 to 2016, goes on a tear of five straight knockouts. So a guy in his mid-30s, who is always a little pudgy, a little soft in the midsection, some fat around his back, his shoulders, his, his chest, all of a sudden comes in with some guns and goes on a 100% knockout streak for three years. Because that happens, that's normal. After the Meldonium scandal and the subsequent Austerine uh, test, which I'll bring up in a second here, by the way, Povetkin has had two fights last year after this whole thing. He fought Andriy Rudenko and Christian Hammer. Guess how those fights ended? They both went all 12. So the guy who was decapitating, destroying durable heavyweights, including some late round knockouts from 24, 2014 to 2016, went to distance with Andriy Rudenko and Christian Hammer after popping twice. Once for Meldonium, once for Austerine. Body transformed in his mid to late 20s. All this presiding in the same country of the Russian doping scandal. You think that's a sequence of events? I think so. I think that's a chain of events we can link together where I can confidently say I suspect something was going on with this dude. I can't prove it 100%. I can't disprove it 100%. Neither can any of these wackos on YouTube. But there's a lot there to look at. By the way, the WBC, because of that water ruling, gave Povetkin a second chance. And they said, look, we're going to give you an exemption. We're going to sanction you for an interim title fight with Berman Stavern. You're going to be on a one-year probation with extra drug testing at your expense. Povetkin's team agreed to this. They signed on. They said, if you test positive for any drug, any prohibitive drug, during this probation, you are banned from WBC events. That's it. Suspension from WBC events. Povetkin and his team agreed to it. Ahead of the fight with Stavern, Povetkin tests positive for Osterine. A trace of a trace of a trace, a very minute amount of Osterine. But it was more than zero, as in positive. By the way, you guys see these uh, people saying that this person passed a test, they failed a test. That's not how these tests are reported. It's either negative or it's positive. In, in so much, you could say there were no abnormalities or there were abnormalities. Okay? So Povetkin, his, his test came back with abnormalities showing trace amounts of Osterine before his fight with Stavern. Here's the thing about Austerine, because the people, the same people that try to defend Alexander Povetkin for some reason, they want to try to tell you that, oh, it was probably contaminated meat, or oh, it was just a really, really tiny, minute trace element, or whatever other excuse they're pulling out of their butt. I don't know, because I don't watch their videos, really. They're just, they're, I'm tired of it. Austerine does not go into food. You cannot get Austerine in food. It's an anabolic that's been in the prohibited list, I believe, since 2008. So there's no contaminated meat excuse here. There's no timing threshold or anything like that with the meldonium case. Austrian has a 24-hour half-life. That's why so many people use it. I'm going to post a link that will show you guys where, where you can read about the half-life nature of Austrian and how quickly it gets out of your system, how difficult it is to detect. Somebody who tested negative during camp, like Povetkin did, and then suddenly, right before the fight, test positive for trace elements of Osterine, given everything that was happening before that over the last year or so, is a giant red flag that somebody could be taking one dose at a time right after a drug test or simply microdosing. It's 
not rocket science. So he had tests two or three weeks apart. Generally speaking, you don't get tested the next day. You don't get tested subsequent days. Sometimes it happens that way, but it's rare. So an athlete who's trying to get an edge, especially right before a fight, if they just had a drug test and they orally ingest Osterine, you can get in a pill. Then maybe they're trying to get away with something there, right? And they think, I'm not going to get tested again for another week or two. Might just be that they screwed up here. And there was a small, minute trace element still left in his system. There's enough there, guys. There's enough there to look at him and suspect him highly. Now, his team and his, uh, his manager, uh, there's promoter, Rabinsky, they, they went on, on a court tear and tried to clear his name, and they went to court here in America. And ultimately, the courts sided with Wilder's side. And this whole thing has gotten worked out to where Povetkin's back in the ratings. He's getting rated now. He's been cleared by the WBC. But let me be careful by saying cleared. Clear doesn't mean that he's been proven innocent of no wrongdoing. It just means that everything is cool now, he's being tested, and he's back in the ratings. I should also note that during the, the camp for the Stavern fight, Berman Stavern himself also tested positive for a stimulant, and you'll hear people try to use that as an excuse. Well, Stavern tested negative or positive too, so why didn't they punish him? Here's the thing about that. He tested positive for a stimulant, but submitted documentation, including the location of where he bought a certain supplement and receipts to the testing authorities. They were able to uh, investigate all this and determine that it was absolutely true. And in fact, the supplement he took, which you can buy over the counter at any gym in America, has the stimulant as an ingredient. Nonetheless, you know, they put him on the, the probationary period and everything, just like they did for Povetkin. But he should have searched what he was putting in his body. He's still responsible for it. So they fined him $75,000. So Stavern absolutely was treated accordingly with what happened. So if you hear people try to spin that, there's the truth there. Now the Floyd Mayweather scenario. I, there was a few of you trying to say I was on a witch hunt against Floyd Mayweather, yet I'm protecting Canelo Alvarez. What an asinine comment. The Floyd Mayweather situation is so different. Before Canelo was the protected baby of Nevada, it was Floyd Mayweather. And you take, take the special treatment Canelo gets and amplify it by tenfold. That's what Floyd got. Floyd returned not one, but two low TE ratios on standard, just regular State Athletic Commission urine test done by Nevada Athletic Commission. Two low TE ratios, which is a dead giveaway for doping, and there is zero follow-up. In fact, it was kind of brushed under the radar in the boxing media. And of course, there's the illegal IV use that didn't happen at the arena where he weighed in for Manny Pacquiao. He weighed in, did interviews, took pictures, signed autographs, got in his car, drove home, shot the shit with the homies, and then did a IV right there in his house. Now, he claimed a therapeutic use exemption because there was a medical emergency because he was dehydrated. Yet he was able to do all those things and go home and hydrate himself with an illegal IV. I don't know about you, but I've seen plenty of guys who are in bad shape at weigh-ins and they immediately hydrated right there at the spot of the weigh-in when they were done. They didn't, they, they didn't feel comfortable enough to drive home and do it. Either way, it was a violation of WADA protocol. He did get the TUE. I get it. But none of it was reported until after the fight with Pacquiao took place, which wasn't good. Not to mention Floyd Mayweather's long layoffs with absolutely no testing. His refusal to do VADA testing, even though Manny Pacquiao and his side wanted it. His demand to go with USADA, which cost 100 times more than VADA, often. At least tens times more. With, with VADA testing, you're, you're maybe talking a thousand. Maybe you're getting into the tens of thousands. With USADA, it's well over a hundred thousand. So he turned down VADA testing, which was over a hundred thousand dollars cheaper 
to test with USADA, which is over $100,000 more, with whom him and his advisor have a comfortable relationship with that goes back years, who never catches anybody. Again, take all that and then couple that with the fact that this dude's body changed significantly in his late 30s. Not his 20s, not his late 20s, his late 30s. People keep talking about Canelo's body changing here. He's, what, 27, 28? My body changed still when I was 27, 28. I continued to put on muscle until my early 30s, as most athletes do. But with Povetkin, we're talking mid to late 30s. With Floyd, we're talking late 30s. Their bodies were changing. Remember Juan Manuel Marquez in that fourth fight with Manny Pacquiao? You saw how his body changed? How old is he then? Late 30s? Similar scenario, right? So, Lucas Brown. A lot of people have talked about he tested positive for clenbuterol, and they took his title. Here's the difference with that one that they won't tell you. Lucas Brown had several tests done during fight camp for his title fight with Ruslan Shigaev. Came back negative. Suddenly, the week of the fight, he tests positive for clenbuterol. If you guys, since you're all experts, you know that clenbuterol, what it helps you with, would absolutely have helped him in that fight, especially if you're taking it, consuming it, the week of the fight. Watch the fight, guys. Brown is down in the sixth round. He has a second win late. Shigaev gets tired. Brown overwhelms him with activity and stops him in the tenth. Yeah, looks like that clenbuterol might have helped in his performance, huh? You can't compare somebody testing positive for clenbuterol the week of a fight to somebody testing positive for clenbuterol the first week of camp for a fight. Different situations, different nuance. If you were the WBA, how would have you handled that situation? The dude who just won your heavyweight title tested positive for a banned substance the week of the fight. You let him keep that title? Or you strip the title, put him on probation, do an investigation. I know what I would have did, and that's what the WBA did. Now, you guys hear me bash the BC and the BBA all day, all day, all night, all day. I bash these guys. But when they get something right, I give them credit. I don't think they treated Brown unfairly. After the investigation, they put him back in the ratings. They gave him a second chance. They put him on a probationary basis with extra testing. And they sanctioned him for an interim title fight. Gee, this sounds familiar. Then what happens? He tests positive for Osterine. I've already talked about Osterine. Boy, this sounds familiar. Am I crazy for saying, for, for looking at a guy like Lucas Brown and saying, man, I suspect that there is something going on with that dude with all the information we have. I don't think so. I don't think I'm treating him unfairly. Bottom line, guys, with this whole situation, the sanctioning organizations, the Association of Boxing Commissions, the ABC, and the State Athletic Commissions, namely the Nevada State Athletic Commission, who is the leader of all of them, they cannot sit around and wait for WADA to make it a definitive ruling about clenbuterol because it's going to be a while. And Clubuterol's got their hands tied with all the litigation possibilities and everything else. So they need to set a policy right now, a uniformed policy that all the sanctioning organizations follow, that all the commissions follow, where from date X, if you test positive with any amount of Clubuterol in your system, you're suspended for X amount of months. Yes. It might be contaminated meat, but you know what? We're not accepting that excuse anymore. You should know better that you're in a country like Mexico or China where they use clenbuterol in their livestock. You should watch what you're eating there. Period. I think that's what they need to do. And again, when I get the opportunity to ask those questions to those parties, I will. Because right now, the bottom line is any dirty athlete in Mexico, in China, can use this contaminated meat thing as an excuse, as a loophole to exploit. So until there's some sort of ruling on it, we will see more of these damn cases. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting sick of it. All right, that's enough with this talk for now. Go ahead and make a bunch of videos, picking out little nuances of sentences I said 
and you know, go ahead and hate as much as you want. Let's get into the review of what took place last week. Tuesday, March 6th in Thailand, Tamanun Niamtrong, or CP, <laughs> quick fresh mark, one of the best uh, nicknames in boxing, scores a unanimous decision over Toto Landero, defends his WBA minimum weight title for the fourth time. Now on Friday, both Friday, March 9th, and Saturday, March 10th, we had cards on ESPN and Showtime. It was a loaded weekend for diehard fans. Wasn't really a big, you know, casual fan fest type of uh, cards, but good, good stuff for the diehards. So, the Hangar in Costa Mesa, California, just in Orange County, maybe an hour from uh, from Los Angeles. It was a Golden Boy promotion show on ESPN, and in the main event, Avat Hovanesian scores a six-round knockout over Ronnie Rios. Rios was down in the sixth round, was buzzed several times, and really got beat up in that fight, man. He really took a, a beating. Even though it only went six rounds, he took some punishment in that ring. What was crazy for me is the judges had this as a majority draw at the time of the stoppage, which is ridiculous. Hovanesian was clearly ahead in this fight. I thought that from about the third round on, he was in complete control. Really, really impressive performance for him. He's coming into his own as a professional prize fighter. And with this win, he earned a shot at WBC Super Bantamweight titleist Ray Vargas. That will be a fun fight when it happens. Also on this card, welterweight prospect Alexis Rocha improved to 11-0 with eight knockouts with a first round KO. Exciting performance from him. Now, in the Deadwood Mountain Grand in Deadwood, South Dakota, there is a showbox card. And in the co-main, Ivan Baranchek scored a TKO 8 over Peter Petrov. Petrov is a good quality fighter, down in the first, second, and sixth round. Quality guy who, uh, just a lot of experience. He's been in with so many good fighters. He's getting a little long in the tooth, though, right? He's getting old, and it showed a little bit in this fight. But impressive performance by Baranchek, who's now 18-0 with 11 knockouts. Super lightweight fighter from Russia, but lives in Miami, Oklahoma, of all places. Who knew there were Russians in Oklahoma? I certainly did not. In the main event, Reggie's program proved to 21-0 with 18 knockouts with a second-round TKO over Julius Ndongo. You remember last year, it took uh, Terrence Crawford three rounds to get rid of Ndongo. Prograde did it in two, wins the interim WBC 140-pound title, gets the winner of the Ramirez-Imam fight eventually. Ndongo was down in the first round and down three times in round two. Now, I'm hearing kind of two schools of thought on this. I'm hearing some people say that Ndongo is just a terrible, terrible fighter, and uh, this performance by Progray isn't really great, and it wasn't nothing to really get excited about. I don't necessarily agree with that, but then on the other side, there are people saying Pro Gray is the next big thing, and he destroyed Ndongo, who was a unified titleist, and he's right up there with Terrence Crawford because he did it quicker than Crawford did. I don't quite agree with that either. The truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? We got to see more from Pro Gray, obviously. I can't wait to see him against the winner of the Ramirez Imam fight, but I'll tell you this. He passes the eye test, man. He's out of New Orleans. He trains in Houston, where I, I keep telling you guys there is a growing boxing scene in that part of Texas, and I just like what I see. But he is a little crude, and he could use some refinement. He could use rounds. I don't think the fight between him and the Ramirez Imam winner is going to happen next. That's going to take some time. So in between, let's get him in there with a guy who could take him seven, eight, nine, ten rounds so that he can get some rounds and work on some stuff. All right, Saturday, March 10th at the Monsoon Center, Subhub Center in Carson, California. It was a top-ranked card on ESPN, which didn't start till around 10.30 Eastern time. The main event didn't start till around midnight out there. They got to do something about the late start of these cards. Now, I know that they replayed the card Sunday, which is good, but that, that's just kind of late, man. That's just Especially with the lackluster opening bout. Andy Vences and Eric DeLeon fought to a majority draw. I bought into, these guys talked a lot of trash in the buildup for the fight. Two undefeated prospects, their first big chance, on, on the first time on a big stage, national audience like this, on such a big platform. And they left so much on the table. They did not 
let it all hang out. They just did not give enough in this fight. Scores were 95-95 twice, and uh, Judge Zach Young scored it 96-94 for De Leon. Uh, ringside that night, I thought Vences edged it with his early ring generalship in the early rounds and built up enough of a lead. Where I had him win, I think I had him like 96-95, 96-94, but I have no problem with someone giving it to De Leon. The truth is, this fight should have ended in a draw. Neither man deserved a win in this fight. It was really, really underwhelming. Vences started well early. De Leon caught up late, made it close. But I just, I don't know, man. These guys go back to the drawing board, work on some stuff. You know, sometimes this type of performance, a fighter can learn from. And I think both of these guys will go their separate ways. They'll look back at this fight. They can look at all that footage and see what they did wrong and learn from it. And hopefully it makes them better. In the main event, Oscar Valdez improves to 24-0 with 19 knockouts. Scores a unanimous decision over Scott Quigg. Defends his WBO featherweight title for the third time. Now, Quig missed weight the day before by almost three pounds. Refused to do a second day weigh-in. Blamed it on a fractured foot. There was no evidence of a fractured foot in the fight because he was marching forward and pressuring Valdez all night and looked pretty good as far as his energy and everything. It was clear to me that he didn't even try to make weight. I don't know what happened in camp. I don't know if they were trying to come in with an advantage. I really, really don't know. Maybe there was a stress fracture and there was an issue with his foot at some point in camp. But he just looked, he had way too much energy, man. He looked too damn good. It looked like he did not even try to make weight at all. And when you have one guy who kills himself to make weight and another guy who doesn't, it shows in the fight. Quig cut his eye. Broke his nose, badly broke that nose. I was standing five feet from the ring in the rain, and you could just see the nose continue to swell up. It looked grotesque. And Valdez broke his jaw and lost several teeth. So both of these guys earned their money. And for Valdez, his official purse was 400 grand. Quig's official purse was 100 grand. But keep in mind, guys, there's foreign money involved. You got a UK fighter and a Mexican fighter. So they both got more money than that. That's why the fight ultimately went through. That's why it happened, even though uh, Quig, with his really unprofessional, inexcusable actions, um, you know, a lot of people thought that the fight should be canceled, but ultimately Valdez went through with it because he wanted that payday. So it kind of is a shame that the fight started around midnight on the East Coast because this was a good action fight, and man, Valdez showed some real grit and determination in that performance. And I think he would have made a lot of fans if people had seen him. But I don't know how many people on the East Coast did see him. You know what I'm saying? So the night of the fight, I did a uh, ringside recap. And I talked about the, the lack of craft because I just didn't see jabs being thrown. And I didn't see, Valdez just never really figured out how to keep Quig off of him. And a lot of things that Quig was doing were kind of one-dimensional. However, I didn't know at the time that dude had a broken jaw. And you know what? When you have a broken jaw, and Quig, for that matter, had a broken nose, you're not going to fight the most fundamentally sound fight of your life. So I give both guys credit. I can't give Quig too much credit because he didn't make weight. He wasn't professional. But I give Oscar Valdez a ton of credit. That being said, the cards were way too wide, in my opinion. Uh, 118 to 110, and two judges had it 117, 111. I, I can live with the ones, I don't know. To me, this is more of a 116-112 fight in, in, in my eyes. I, I mean, I, clearly, clearly Valdez won, but it was a little closer than that in my card. Um, but, you know, look, the, the Titleist, the A, the, uh, the A side, the guy fighting in his backyard, relative backyard here in L.A., he gets the benefit of the doubt from the judges. You know, we've seen this a million times. Either way, the right guy wins. Here's the thing with Valdez, though. Breaks that jaw. I don't know if you guys saw on his Instagram, he posted a, a photo of it from the hospital. He had successful surgery today to, uh, to fix it. I think they had to put some wires in it and all this stuff. But he's busted up. It looked like his left hand is really busted up. I don't know if this dude's going to fight again this year. So it's like, yeah, you got a payday. You got your fight on. Uh, on ESPN and all that stuff. But you might be out for a year. Because you're going to have to recover. Then 
you're going to have to get back into camp, get back in shape. Then you're going to have to have a layup, tune-up fight to get rounds in. So before he's in a competitive fight again, it's going to be at least a year. So was it worth it? Was it not? I'm not sure. I'm curious what you guys think, man. I'll say this much about that card. It was raining all day. It started raining Friday, really. And the rain made it a really fun, memorable experience. I've never stood for a main event because, you know, ringside, you're supposed to have professional protocol. You're supposed to sit down, no clapping, no cheering, none of that. Although a lot of idiots break those rules. But for this fight, because it was just so messed up and so crazy, and there was maybe 2,000 people there, tops, maybe a little, maybe 2,500 tops, huddled in these little tents that they put up around the top of the arena and stuff. But for us, ringside, all of press row was soaked. Nobody brought their laptop, you know. Most of the press people went up in the photography booths and hung out up there, but there was a couple of us down there standing in the rain, and I was literally standing three feet behind Timothy Bradley, who was calling the fight, along with Bernardo Asuda and Mark Kriegel, and just standing there getting rained on, shooting the shit with some of the other press guys there, watching the fights, having a good time. It was a unique experience. I will not forget it for a very, very long time. One of those things that, yeah, it's just going to stand out in my mind because it was so different. Okay, in San Antonio at the Freeman Coliseum on Showtime, in the main event of that card, Mikey Garcia, no surprise here, unanimous decision win over Sergey Lipinets, wins the IBF 140-pound title. Lipinets was down in the seventh. The scores were 116-111 and 117-110 twice. A lot of people felt those cards were a little wide. Some people had this like more of like a 7 to 5 kind of fight, which would be a 115-112 score. Um, I thought 116-111 was fine. I, I was cool with that score. 117-110, that's getting a little wide. Either way, Sergey Lipinets. He goes life and death with Akihiro Kondo last November to win his title. This was his first defense, only his 14th professional fight. He had a very limited amateur career as a boxer, right? So that's the lineage of this title, if you will, for Mikey Garcia, who claims a fourth title in his fourth weight class. But again, I will continue to say, this guy's resume doesn't impress me. Wins the featherweight title against Orlando Salido. That's his best win to date. Doesn't defend it once. His very first defense loses the, fight, or loses the title on the scales. Wins the 130-pound title against Roman Martinez. Dropped in that fight, but comes back to win it. One defense of that title. Then he kind of semi-quasi-retires for a couple years because he doesn't want, want to do what Top Rank wants him to do. Top Rank wants their fighters to behave like fighters. He wants to be a businessman. He comes back after a couple years with PBC, fights Dijon Zlatikinen for a lightweight title, which he has yet to defend. And now he just beat Sergey Lipinets for the 140-pound title. So these four titles in four different weight classes, one title defense, one. Guys, is this resume any better than Adrian Broner? Adrian Broner at least defended some of his titles. They were just as paper thin as, as Garcia's. Although I got you know his featherweight title and his super featherweight title are legit. Those aren't paper titles, but he, he didn't defend. Well, he had one defense. That's it. A lot of smoke and mirrors here with Mikey Garcia. Now, some of the media guys around me Saturday night as we were watching the Valdez-Quig fight right in front of us, they were checking their phones and checking out what's going on with the Garcia-Lipinets fight, and they were talking about Garcia. And some guys were saying, this dude is pound for pound in the top three. There was one guy there saying he's pound for pound number one right now. And there was other guys there saying he tuned up Vasil Lomachenko. He's going to decapitate Jorge Linares. He owned everyone in the 140-pound division. I just don't know what these guys are seeing. As far as the eye test, as far as fundamentals, yes, he's pound for pound one of the finest technicians in the sport. But as far as accomplishments, you can't put him in the top five pound for pound. He hasn't done enough. Simple as that. In the co-main, Carol Relic scores a unanimous decision over a walking corpse that was Rancis Bartholomew. Wins a WBA 140-pound title. Relic learned a lot from the 24 rounds he spent with Ricky Burns and Bartholomew in their first fight last year. 
he looked better in this fight than I've seen him look in any fight. He's not an elite level fighter. It's pretty much one dimension to him. One thing he does. But Bartholomew just looked like absolute stir-fried shit. And now this Belarus fighter, he's got a title. So good for him. He earned it. Also on this card, lightweight Rich Acomi wins a TKO 6. Um, he will, I believe, get another crack at Robert Easter Jr. They had a very close competitive fight with a controversial decision that went Easter's way recently. If those two fight again, Comey's going to give him hell. And he improved a lot since that fight. I don't know if Easter's improved at all. Also, undefeated San Antonio 140-pound prospect Mario Barrios wins by TKO2. All right, guys, that's it with the review of what took place last week. Let's preview what's coming up this week. This Friday, March 16th, from downtown Los Angeles at the Belasco Theater, it is the return of LA Fight Club. These cards are um, streamed on Ring's website, I believe, and they air on Australia TV. I believe uh, featherweight prospect Edgar Valerio will be on this card. Also a female fighter, Sanistia Estrada, she'll be fighting as well. There's also a Telemundo card from Tampa, Florida that Friday night that you can check out. Now, Saturday, March 17th, it's another top rank on ESPN card, this time from the Madison Square Garden Theater in New York City. And of course, St. Patrick's Day weekend. That means you gotta have Michael Conlon on the card, right? Now we were there for his pro debut at the MSG Theater last year, and let me tell you, the Irish fans are fun as hell, man. They have a good time. That place is gonna be filled. And the MSG Theater, when it's filled, to capacity and you have a bunch of lively fans there that place is loud and it is fun i don't know if there are any more tickets still available for this card but if there are go <laughs> you will have a great time there's going to be irish fans there ukrainian fans puerto rican fans and mexican fans you can't go wrong it's going to be a hell of a time okay so i talked about conlon he's fighting in an eight rounder super bantamweight fight also two puerto ricans Super featherweight Christopher Diaz, who's 22-0. He's fighting in a 10-rounder. And another guy you might have heard of. Lightweight Felix Berdejo, 23-0. Was once the most highly touted prospect in the sport. And then just flatlined. What's crazy is this dude is still undefeated. And we talk about him like his career's over. He's going to be on this card. He hasn't fought since February 2017. But he will be on this card. In the co-feature, Alexander Gavajdik, the Ukrainian fighter now based in Oxnard, the bronze medalist in the 2012 Olympics, the guy who went 9-0 in the World Series of Boxing, 14-0 with 12 knockouts as a pro, fighting for the interim WBC light heavyweight title, was supposed to be fighting Edladir Alvarez, but that fell through. I won't beat that dead horse for the upteenth time. Instead, he's going to fight replacement Frenchman Medhi Amar, who is 34-5-2 against a bunch of cab drivers and has no business being in the ring with Gavajdik for an interim title. So, look, we've seen Gavajdik before kind of play with his food before going for the knockout in a fight where he's in there with an overmatched opponent. I think that's what we'll see here. I don't see a first-round blowout. I see him playing around with Amar, getting some rounds in, and then in the middle rounds, going for the knockout and getting it. And he's supposed to get, as a result of this fight, a crack at the winner of the Adonis Stevenson-Badu-Jack fight. Because, obviously, Adonis Stevenson has that WBC light heavyweight title. He's had it for a billion years. Edladir Alvarez, though, I believe, is still the WBC light heavyweight mandatory. So I don't quite understand how this situation is going to work out. But I, I don't know, man. Look... Light heavyweight is quite possibly the most loaded division in boxing right now with the most possible great matchups you can make. But here's the issue. Gavajdik and recently Artur Beterbiev signed with top rank as well. So both Gavajdik and Beterbiev are with ESPN. Sergey Kovalev and Dmitry Bivol just fought in the same card on HBO. They're HBO guys. And I just talked about Stevenson and Jack. They're Showtime guys. How do we get all these fights to happen? I don't know, but it's going to be tough. In the main event, 
Jose Carlos Ramirez, 21-0, 16 knockouts. The 2012 American Olympian from California going up against Amir Imam for the vacant WBC 140-pound title. I talked about Regis Progre winning the interim version of that title last week. These guys are fighting for the quote-unquote full version of the title. Ramirez is 25 years old, 5'10", 72-inch reach. Imam, 27 years old, 5'10", 74-inch reach. Ramirez is more of a pressure fighter, a stalker, a swarmer. Imam, more of a classic boxer skills, you know, with, with skills. So the matchup on paper is pretty damn interesting. I mentioned Ramirez going to the 2012 Olympics. Imam came up just short, lost in the Olympic trials to Errol Spence, who has turned out to be a pretty damn good fighter. Imam came up in that New York amateur system, and he, he started as a prospect 18-0. He was dominating everybody, and then ran into Adrian Granados in November of 2015. He's only fought three times since against very limited opposition. Over that same time span, Ramirez has fought six times. So just looking at career trajectory, styles, all of that stuff, you got to favor Ramirez in this fight. But it wouldn't surprise me because of their styles that early on, Imam is outboxing him and has the superior-looking craft and maybe wins the first two, three rounds. But as we head into the middle rounds, the pressure in the hard power punching from Ramirez, and he is really starting to sit down on his power and develop as a professional punching uh, type of boxer, you know, a hard punching professional fighter. I think he's going to wear Imam down and either stop him late or win a fairly wide, fairly decisive decision on the cards. Sunday, March 18th in Hyogo, Japan, Ryurira Yamanaka fighting Moises Cairos, a Mexican, in the first defense of his WBO minimum weight title. In the co-main for that fight, a Venezuelan fighter, Carlos Canazales, is fighting Rieya Konihi for the vacant WBA light, fly, light flyweight title, or super minimum weight, whichever you prefer. Either way, another uh, Sunday night card from Japan. All right, guys, so that's it. Um, Long-winded about the, the drug testing stuff, and I know we're going to talk more about that. I just have to set the record straight on some of this stuff, okay? Because some of the guys that are trying to spin things, I just think it's irresponsible. I can take the criticism and the heat and all that, but don't spread misinformation. That's bullshit. All right, guys, that's it for this week. I'll see you at the fights. Peace.